joining me today on Ask an Atheist with Sam Mulvey is Rob Palmer. Rob Palmer is the spokesperson for Recovering from Religion. It's an organization dedicated to providing support and resources for individuals at any point along the path of questioning their faith or leaving religion. How are you today, Rob? I'm just fine. Thank you. How are you, Becky? I'm well. It has been a challenging year, but at least for me, not challenging in the realm of religiosity and religion. But I'm certain that that's not the case for a lot of folks anywhere that's uh, experiencing any kind of, you know, changes to our normal daily lives, what with this pandemic going on. So uh, to, to start us off, I know that Ask an Atheist has talked about and talked with folks from Recovering from Religion, but not for a while. Can you give us like a top to bottom nutshell about what is Recovering from Religion? Yeah, so um, we're a nonprofit organization that was started by psychologist uh, Dr. Daryl Ray. He founded it in 2009. And this is when he saw a need uh, when he actually started a meetup sort of a group, I think it was before there was meetup, but something like that, to see, uh, because he, he knew some people who were struggling with religious issues, and so many people came, and he realized, wow, this is, there's really a need for this, and then he, you know, worked with some other people to start an online organization to support this, and it's grown over the years. Um, the, the services we offered have grown in the 11 or so years we've been in existence. So our, our motto, sort of, is to provide hope, healing, and support for people struggling with issues of doubt and non-belief. And uh, people could be anywhere on the path, sort of as you mentioned. They could have just realized, wow, you know, this God stuff makes no sense. Or they could have been long-term atheists, but all of a sudden are struggling with their spouse uh, who's a believer. And, you know, maybe it wasn't an issue up until this point. Or maybe the kids have now grown up and things have changed regarding the kids' religious beliefs uh, being a conflict, that sort of a thing. So you've been a going concern for more than a decade now. I'm certain that that brings a lot of changes. There are so many things you mentioned, like, hmm, started as a, a little meetup group, I guess, in person, maybe even before meetup, the service was a thing. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it was before that. But at this point, we are challenged by not being able in most places in the world at this point of being able to meet in person. And you did say that Recovering from Religion is an online organization. So what kind of um, faces does that take? Well, so it actually is a bit of both. They actually do have Meetup. They use the Meetup organization and the specific RFR chapters of Meetup. And you can go to our main page, which, by the way, is recoveringfromreligion.org. And there's a whole bunch of things there. We'll talk about them as we go along. I mean, one of them is find a group. And, and that leans, goes right to the Meetup organization and our special area of it. So you put your location in and you could find a group. And as, yes, you're alluding to, mostly because no one's meeting a person at this point, uh, all of those have gone online and that's just fine. And that, in fact, makes it a little bit, bit easier because if, like, say there's only one in your state and you don't want to drive four hours to go to it, uh, hey, you know, you go online probably to one and even another state and it wouldn't matter. We're actually in the mode right now of creating a, a virtual organization for Meetup that's going to stay that way, even when the pandemic ends and we have a vaccine uh, because it's just difficult for a lot of people to get out to a real group. I imagine also with something as sensitive as leaving one's religion, there's a lot of family issues and social issues that are wrapped up in that. And so sometimes maybe going physically in person may be difficult, not just because of distance or because of pandemics, but 
because of the weight of showing up physically in person to something that maybe you haven't revealed to anyone. Absolutely. Do you have any, I guess, experience with that personally? I mean, what brought you to working with Recovering from Religion? Do you Have you left your faith, you know, recently or a uh, longtime atheist? Well, my background is probably the minority of the people that I work with who are volunteers to do what I do here. Uh, I actually did not have any trauma, and there's actually a thing called religious trauma syndrome now for people who, you know, convert from a, being a theist to an atheist. The things they have to go through with family or friends, you know, their spouses in life, or even just their own mental struggle is like, yeah, what's the meaning of life now? What do I do with myself? Uh, that sort of thing. Uh, I actually was a Catholic, and I converted in my late teens, which is now so many decades ago, I can't count the number. But um, that, so it, it wasn't that difficult. My family wasn't very religious. Um, so the interesting thing to me now is how easy it is to find out that there are other atheists. Like I didn't know the word and there was no internet. So it's not like it was easy to figure out what was, you know, what the other options were. It's like, oh, I guess I'm not believing anymore. I don't know if anyone else feels that way. Now you just do a Google search and bang, you hit your podcast, any number of YouTube channels, and people at least know there are other people who feel this way. And luckily, one of the things that's fairly easy to find is, is the Recovering from Religion organization, because it is promoted by a lot of other people. You know, sometimes folks that have been in religion for a long time, they'll have, especially I, I'm seeing within evangelical progressive organizations, where you'll say, like, here's a pastor or here's some clergy or here's some lay individuals who are saying, we are a safe place if you're questioning your faith. With the objective of letting people process through that and then bringing them back into the fold. Is recovering from religion somewhat of an opposite of that? Do you try and let people process their doubts and their questions and then bring them out of their religion? Or do you kind of let them be wherever they are in their journey? Yes, our thing is we meet people where they are, and we absolutely do not try to deconvert people. I mean, it's, you know, I have a whole range of kinds of people who call me, and some of them are of the vein, uh, you know, convince me that atheism is right, but that's kind of the minority. Many people have decided that's the right path already, and they just want some basic support that they're not crazy, that, you know, Satan's not tempting them, they're not, you know, they're not going to go to hell, and if, and if they ask questions appropriately... You know, we'll answer we'll answer that. But there's not a time when someone calls and says, "We say, oh, you're you're an idiot for believing in a god." Uh, you know, let me tell you all about atheism. Come over to our church. Um, you know, it, does, it doesn't work that way. In fact, we have part of our system designed so that if someone says, "I'm I'm not happy with my current religion," or even say, you know, specific uh, building that they go to because they don't like the pastor, we will help them find another one. Uh, we'll even go that far. That's certainly the minority of people who call us, though. All right. So the folks that are answering those phone calls aren't trying to convince callers to leave their religion, just trying to meet them where they're at and provide that support. That leads me to who are the people that are calling? Right. So that was the first thing that started in the organization. And, you know, that's one of the things we're most known for. It's the number in the U.S. is actually 84. I doubt it which is kind of cool. And, and in the recent years, they've expanded to have a different number in the UK, Australia, and South Africa. And if you're 
not in one of those countries and you want to reach us, then you go to our website, recoveringfromreligion.org, and there's a little phone icon which makes uh, a, you know, an internet call through our system. And if you're in a place where you can't really talk, because say you're in a, you know, in a house with family who you don't want to know that you're having doubts, there's a little chat icon, and we can just communicate via text. That works also. And the people are you know, of all sorts. I don't, I don't know how, you know, detail you want to talk about the kind of callers we have. Do you want to go down that path? Yeah, of course, while maintaining their individual privacy, can you uh, describe some of the interactions that maybe you've had, the kinds of discussions that you've had from callers to the helpline? Occasionally we'll get trolls. I'll start with that, but that's much less than you might think. Uh, I've, I've been doing this for four months about, and I've maybe helped somewhere in the range of 200 people and one of them was what I would say an absolute troll and he was trying to convince me that Mormonism was not Christianity and it's like well I don't care I'm like why and I was trying to you know lead him down another path of what do you want help with and he just he was just proselytizing for whatever his particular sect was and felt he had to tell me this and, and force me to accept that and no and then I was trying to get him to understand the no true Scotsman fallacy and it's like every Christian sect probably thinks the other ones are going to hell so yeah no and and then he ended that call with saying i'm not exaggerating in, in some sort of a southern accent you're one of those gd atheists aren't you and hung up all right uh, he certainly didn't read the label <laughs> before calling yeah no no <laughs> and, and we've had people call and ask what what is this about which is a little odd because you think the name kind of defines it but one thing I will say is I had a recent call where someone was felt guilty about calling because they thought this was more like a suicide crisis intervention line, and they weren't at that point. So, like, should they be wasting our time? And I have to say, no, that's not what we are. If someone calls in that mode, we'll talk to them and, and you know, try to make sure they get the proper resources. We have the, the helplines for suicide prevention and that sort of thing. But definitely, it's most people are not in that mode. It's just they want to talk and understand, you know, what to do next or where their head is at and, and, and have some resources to help them. And that's one of the big things we do is we provide resources. What kind of training do the uh, staffers of the helpline receive? So it's a bunch of videos by mostly by Gail Jordan, um, who is our executive director, and it's teaching us, you know, what to do, what not to do, as well as how to use the tools that we use in order to interface with the clients. And then we have testing to make sure that we understand what the lessons were, and then we're admitted kind of provisionally, and then we get to be tested as if, uh, you know, someone role plays with us. And that be, might be multiple times, depending how good or not good you do. You know, someone from the organization is more experienced, will role play a client with some problem, and they'll see, you know, how you work it. And then after that, if you pass that, then you're supposed to monitor other conversations before you feel ready to go. And then once you're doing that, other people will check in on what you're doing to make sure you're doing it right. Gotcha. So I imagine that these are very sensitive things that some of your callers may be disclosing or questioning about. What kind of privacy guarantees can you have for the folks that are reaching out either via chat or through phone call or even emailing the Recovering from Religion organization and the different kinds of um, services and ways that folks can reach out? Well, so the phones, yeah, we, well, we do see the, uh, the, the uh, by caller ID, we know the numbers. So if someone feels like they don't want to do that, they can certainly use, you know, the typical thing, which is star 67 to block that. They can use our web service, which, as I mentioned, there's a phone icon on it. It goes through our service, but that's totally anonymous. Um, well, I'll say it's anonymous there and as well as the chat, except for 
The difference, the only thing is we see an IP address if a computer calls in and our system says what country that's from. And that's important to us because if we get a call from a country where um, Sharia law is in effect, we will chat with them just preliminarily, but say we can't continue this and discuss any details unless you get on a VPN and we'll help them do that because we don't want them to put themselves in danger on our account. Understood. And I think that that's probably something that I imagine may have uh, come to light in the process of having this for like 10 years and seeing the different ways in which countries that are much more restrictive in terms of their religious freedoms or freedom to not be religious have treated individuals, have treated apostates, have treated atheists. Is would that be would that be the way that that's come out? Um, yeah, I don't know, know enough about the history to tell you how that was formulated and when it started, but uh, it's been around a long enough time where it's in all the documentation now that there's a list of the countries uh, that have to, that you have to do the VPN thing, and you can't just say, some. Uh, we've had people, oh no, I'm okay, I just like close my browser, but that's not the point, because if there's electronic monitoring, it's not on your computer, it's the computer traffic, and you know we don't want you to be sent to prison or worse. One other part of recovering from religion that has been really potent for a very specific uh, section of individuals is the Secular Therapy Project. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yes. As being a psychologist himself, uh, executive, uh, our founder, Daryl Ray, Dr. Dr. Ray, um, you know, pretty quickly found out that there's a need for psychotherapy. And, and I, nor most of the people on the helpline, are, are psychotherapists, licensed counselors in any way. So we don't do therapy, right? We, we consider this peer support. Um, but yes, occasionally we'll have someone call in, maybe not too occasionally, who also needs therapy. And so we're kind of trained to look for those signs. And then we talk to them, do you have a therapist? Some, some of them already do, and they're happy with them. And that's just great. But if they don't, and they're in an area, especially of the U.S. Bible Belt, or, or you know, they're looking for someone who clearly is not going to tell them to pray to Jesus uh, or Allah to get well, yes, we will point them to the Secular Therapy Project. That's, that's an offshoot of RFR. And specifically what that is, is uh, it's an organization that we put together to be a go-between between clients looking for that kind of help, not religious support, and therapists who are willing to offer that, and we vet them to make sure they're not going to be religiously oriented. Gotcha. So if there are any therapists or counselors or social workers that would want to investigate joining the Secular Therapy Project, maybe getting listed saying, yeah, I'm willing to provide that kind of counseling in my practice, where can they go? Can they reach out to Recovering from Religion? Should they Google Secular Therapy Project? So what they could do is actually go right to our main page, um, which has a link right to their page, but their page is seculartherapy.org. And there's a place on there where it's contact us and then it starts a process of joining the organization. I think that that probably would be so important for folks that are struggling, wanting uh, some kind of counseling and then you know, to not be met with a therapist saying, well, why don't you try and push through it? Why don't you go back to your pastor and ask him, you know? And surprisingly, I've had callers tell me that. And and it's very disturbing when that happens to somebody because like usually that won't come up right away. So maybe, you know, it takes a while to get used to a a counselor. So you're going every week and you've already put in two months and then you hit the big crux of whatever you're there for finally. And then they say, okay, let's pray to Jesus. And if you don't believe in Jesus, that destroys your relationship with that person and you've wasted all your time and you have to start from scratch so yeah finding a secular therapist to begin with you know that's not going to happen and and besides not being 
religious, we make sure that they have scientific principles backing up their therapy. So it's not somebody who's going to try to heal you by, oh, I can name a whole bunch of things, Reiki or acupuncture or, you know, sitting down with a Ouija board. That might not be part of mainstream religion, but they're also not scientific views. So besides the helpline, which we talked about, but the phone number and the chats, and the fact that when you call in, we will help people find the proper resources for whatever their issues are. And and those could be all sorts of things. Uh, you know, people could call that they have problems. They're, they need to overcome religious issues as a large, as a large 40,000-foot uh, view on it. And then if they say that's it, we go into, okay, what specifically, and there's all resources, they could be books, they could be YouTube videos, they could be online articles that will point them to to help them find them. Also, separate area is for people who are no longer religious at all, but all having problems with family or whatever. And then there's, people, there's ones, like I mentioned before, if you're seeking what to do, you're not sure there isn't a God, but you're still looking. So that's kind of the three categories. So I wanted to mention that. If you call or chat in, a lot of people, even though they don't know it, they could be helped by those things and we'll, we'll you know point those people in the right direction so the other thing that we do is we have a private chat area which is sort of like a meetup group except you just do it with text i guess people who use a discord servers or maybe reddit can think of it like that except it's not available in general on the internet it is totally private you can't even find it by doing a search you can only get into those groups by doing a chat or a phone call with an agent and being vetted essentially we don't let anyone in who, who's going to try to convert somebody back to a religion and we have all these separate groups for people who are you know have all separate topics or uh, maybe a specific religions as an ex-mormon one ex-catholic ex-jehovah witnesses ex-muslim that sort of thing and you can go in there and talk with your own peers who are also having the same kinds of problems sort of like a meetup group and that that helps people a lot so that that's one thing. And one last thing I want to mention is since the pandemic started and we realized people can't get together in person, we started this thing we're calling RFRX, sort of like TEDx, which are talks that we do weekly. It's 8 o'clock on Mondays, Eastern Time. And what that is, is they have a psychologist or someone knowledgeable about atheist religious issues give a half hour maybe talk. And then after that, oh, and everyone who's interested there's a Zoom session, so the video Zoom in, and you can talk directly to the person after their talk, ask questions, and then if they leave, sometimes three or four hours, the, the people who join the meeting talk amongst themselves about all sorts of issues. So that's really very, very healing also. Where can folks find those invites or links to those Zoom sessions? Are they publicly available? Do you have to be invited to them? So those are publicly available. They're actually advertised widely to a lot of groups, like the ACA puts it on their Discord server and that sort of thing. And one place I think you can find it is if you go to our YouTube channel, uh, Recovering from Religion is a channel name on YouTube, there's a playlist called RFRX. And that has all the ones we've done in the past uploaded. Now, we don't we don't upload the private discussions that I mentioned where people are talking to each other afterwards, but we have the, set, the part of the session where the professional is talking. And that's also helpful for anyone now who wants to see what, you know, what kind of meetings we've had, maybe a particular topic might interest you, and it might help just be helped just by watching that video. And, you know, there they'll have that information also uh, where the, the Zoom link is. But also, if you're in our chat groups I was talking about that you get in by invitation, you know, this is publicly advertised there every week. So, you know, so people who are in that especially don't miss it. Awesome. One thing that I wanted to uh, go back to was that notion of having specific 
groups for those specific experiences, ex-Jehovah's Witnesses and ex-Muslims and ex-fundamentalist Christians. And as someone who grew up observant and, and religious, but not within the Christian domain, I guess in the in the for me in the sort of like mid teens, right, like 2010 to like 2015, where there was a lot of atheist activity, it was a little bit distancing. I won't say alienating, but a little bit distancing for me to be participating in groups of folks that are like, yes, I am someone who is an atheist. I am agnostic about what happens after death. Um and I don't want religion creeping into our secular policies and laws. But then they would go about it from a very ex-Christian perspective. And as someone who didn't grow up within that realm, you know, I mean, obviously, that's the largest group of individuals in our United States. And so it would be very common sure. to find atheists who formerly were Christian of some flavor. But it was something that I really couldn't relate to in a lot of ways. People would say, well, I'm an atheist because religion damaged me. And I said, well... I mean, I I didn't have anyone in my household beating me under religious precepts. I didn't have a clergy member who was greedily seeking power. I mean, I actually had a ve- I have very fond memories of my religious summer camps because I grew up in a generally egalitarian, progressive Jewish substrate. And there's a lot oh, okay. of folks that still are active in within Judaism who are atheists. You know, there's sort of. Oh, I I have to tell you about the few Jews who've called me. Okay. Oh, they were from the, um, you know, the community in Brooklyn, which is Orthodox to the point where they speak Yiddish as their first language, that sort of thing. And they, you know, are not allowed to carry smartphones. They have no contact with the Internet. Women are not allowed to read. And I've had two men call me from that. that it was like heart wrenching because, I, you know, hey, here's the website I can give you for the resources. And, oh, I'm not allowed to look at the Internet. I have no computer. Those, that was hard to hear. Yeah. And that's a very different experience from someone who grew up in a Catholic church and maybe was like peripheral to a lot of the clergy abuse. It's very different experience from someone who, like me, who grew up in a progressive egalitarian, you know, uh, uh, Jewish synagogue. Um, It's going to be different from so many other experiences. So I think that there's something so key and so on point and so special about having those support groups where people can talk specifically about things that are that are common yeah Yeah, they even have ones that aren't specifically religious related. So there's one that's black non-believers because it's more difficult even than it is for a white American in a religious household to leave. Uh, so we have a separate area for that as one example. Um, there's also military. I haven't been in the military, so I'm not sure what the issues there are. But, you know, apparently there's enough to talk about that uh, concerns people who were in the military religious wise. So that's interesting. And there's other things like that, too. So definitely a place where folks that even may not have found a support network within their local atheist or humanist community could find something that is more relevant, more personal, and more... Absolutely. Um, yeah. Oh, the, the newest one we added was Empowered Women, which, by the way, they don't allow men in. So that's, that's a really segregated one. <laughs> That's interesting. Yeah, because that's such a large issue where people have called me, you know, who, if I had to break the categories of people, that's a large category of people who call me. They're women who are fed up with misogyny in their religion, or specifically in their parish, church, whatever. 
Yeah. Well, Rob, I really am grateful for our conversation today to be able to bring awareness to this resource, this community. Is there any other thing that you'd like to share about uh, recovering from religion? Any advice that you might have for our listeners? Any just just get the just get the word out. It's great if any other atheist wants to you know look up our website, uh, recoveringfromreligion.org. Maybe just post a link on your own Facebook page or tweet it out to you know friends and family, anyone because sometimes you never know who's struggling with this. Uh, you might say, well, my family is religious and they don't want to talk about it, but maybe they would call us, even though they're not going to argue with you or, you know, tell you because you might tell the rest of the family. So th- that's important. And we also always need volunteers. So right on that main page, there's a volunteer tab just right next to the resources one. Uh, and it leads you to a form you fill out, which is how I, f- I, I volunteered. And, you know, it only asks for a few questions and then you get contacted for an interview as the first step. I do want to ask you, Rob, what drew you to being a volunteer with Recovering from Religion, especially as someone who didn't describe, you know, having any kind of traumatic experience leaving your uh, childhood religion? Good question, Becky. Well, so I didn't have a traumatic experience, but I did have an, um, what's the proper word here? Unpleasant one, I'll say, but not because of me directly. Uh, So I'll give you the really quick version of this, I hope. I have a huge extended family, or we were all uh, Catholic Italian Americans, and within once, probably not very religious. I would say most of the family didn't go to church except for Christmas and Easter for most of the most of their lives. Uh, and then one summer, a, an evangelical uh, church came to the area they lived in, which was Long Island, and within a few months, my whole family, all of my cousins and aunts and uncles, that was 18 first cousins, converted to that other religion, that other sect of Christianity. And only my uh, self, my two siblings, and my parents did not. And we became sort of the black sheeps of the family in one way, but we were also kept being nagged to join them, otherwise we're going to burn in hell. And I've had to live with this for decades, that the other part of the family is still this way. You know, they, they go see a movie about uh, the last Left Behind movie uh, that was Nicolas Cage was in it, you know, and, and they start posting all over Facebook, you know, to us and to everyone in general. This is real. This is going to happen any day. The rapture is about to happen. You guys better get right with Jesus. So, you know, it's been there. Not not as a personal pain to me, but that my family is that way and there's nothing I can do about it. So, you know, it's different that you try to convert somebody else. And as we in Recovering with Religion don't do that, this is a chance to help people who have already made that first step. And that's what I liked about it. And I, I heard about it, frankly, on, on the Atheist Experience uh, and then on Talk Heathen and several of the other ACA shows. And, and I always thought, oh, I, sh- I started hearing about it probably five years ago. So if I ever have time, extra time, I would like to help these people. Because um, there's always a group of people who call the series of shows who are in the mode that we could help them. Right? It's not the people who are, uh, you know, uh, trying to defend their version of God and always get trampled. It, it, but but the people who call who are in pain because they have no one else to talk to, they don't know what to do next. And as I said on that show, they often will ask them to call recovering from religion. It's it's great they do that. And I always thought, well, if I had time, I I could help with that. And I was very busy; I didn't have time. And then the pandemic happened, and I retired, so I had some extra time. There you that, go. That's that's a slight silver lining of the pandemic. And we got some other volunteers for that same reason. Well, I think that... Not, not necessarily that they retired, but, you know, working from home, more time at home or whatever. Some people lost their jobs. So, yeah. 
it does give anytime that you have a big life change, uh, whether it's a social life change or a personal life change, it does give pause and I think open the door for doing different kinds of things. And so I think that yeah. for folks that are looking for a way to volunteer, and it sounds like in a way that you don't even have to leave your home to volunteer. Absolutely. This might be a good way to go about yeah, that. It's a- great group of people we're international you get to talk to chatting and and in person on those zoom chats and meet people from all over the world uh as i I think i started to mention before a lot of the other volunteers who work with me did have traumatic experiences like a lot of them were cultish coming out of mormonism or jehovah's witnesses and some just recently in fact there's one person who's undercover because he's going to mormon university last year and now he's decided he's an atheist and he can't admit that otherwise you know he might not be able to finish his degree so you meet a lot of interesting people, many of which have their own personal trauma from this, and this is helping them work through it just by helping other people. And I should say and, and ask, are there folks who can speak languages other than English, or is this for right now English only as resources? We do, in fact, have that. Just as I came on board in April, they started formalizing lists of people who speak other languages and so that we can get them involved. Uh, we want to get somebody uh, who's difficult to understand because they're speaking English on the phone, but it's it's clearly, you know, they're not doing it very well. And, and mostly for people who chat in, who are immediately chatting in in another language. So I think that's Russian is, you know, let's, let's let me contact who I see the Russian agent is. Are you available? Oh, yeah, please take this one over. And, and that works nicely. So that's to say that for volunteers who are multilingual, there's probably high demand for you. Absolutely. Rob, thank you so much for enlightening us, uh, having this like a 10-year check-in about recovering from religion. I really appreciate it and I'm excited to bring this to our listeners. I'm really glad I had an opportunity to do that. Yeah. is the spokesperson for Recovering from Religion. It's an organization dedicated to providing support and resources for individuals along the path of questioning their faith or leaving religion. So Rob, besides being a spokesperson for Recovering from Religion and a volunteer, you are no stranger to activism within atheist and scientific skeptical movements. Uh, Do you want to share any of your work and activism in those realms too? Yeah, so before I got uh, the idea to join Recovering from Religion, I was uh, I would call myself a, um, a skeptical activist, specifically a scientific skeptic. And, uh, you know, that, that's a term, there's actually a skeptical movement. Uh, you can actually look up that term on Wikipedia, skeptical movement, and you'll, and you'll find the article talking about what I and the, the people who I work with do. But basically, it's to, you know, be science communicators and also to push back on superstition, uh, paranormal beliefs, alternative med- medicine beliefs, anti-vax, you know, that sort of a thing, and improve people's understanding of science and, hey, reality. So back in 2016, I, well, I'll go back a little further. 2012, I found out that there was such a thing as a skeptical movement by finding podcasts, as a matter of fact. 
And um, I said, wow, I've been like a scientific skeptic all my life. I didn't know it had a name. Pretty much the same time I came out of religion when I was a teenager, I found a magazine called Skeptical Inquirer on a bookshelf. And it's like, wow, these things I believe in, like alien abductions aren't real. And, and, you know, ancient aliens didn't build the pyramids. And probably there's no Bigfoot or Loch Ness Monster. And Ouija boards don't work by magic. (laughs) And it's like, and it totally converted me within a very short time to, I was very, I was into science, but at that time, again, there was no internet. So you couldn't really find any alternative thing to what was on television and these books about these fantastic things. And it just seemed, well, it's in black and white. This has to be real. Much easier to find the alternative version of that now. And and, and as I said, I found that magazine. It was the first time I ever found the contrary story to these things about scientific-minded people saying this is all bunk. And in a short time, I came to realize that pretty much everything like that I had believed was bunk. So now we fast forward a long time to uh, the, the 2012 area, and I found podcasting. Started, I was into astronomy, so I looked up universe, and I found a podcast named The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe, which turned out to be a combination of science discussions and skepticism. They're like a premier skeptical podcast. Highly recommend it. It's, been, it's one of the older podcasts, too, of this, of this venue. And then that led me to listening to The Skeptic Zone from Australia and other podcasts dealing with scientific skepticism and on those I heard about a movement called or project called the Gorilla Skepticism on Wikipedia Project. Yeah, we've actually I want to say about two years ago uh, we were speaking with Susan Gorilla Skeptic who uh, I guess Gorilla Skeptics meaning like, you know, under the radar kind, not the uh, primate kind. Exactly. In camouflage, fighting the battle in camouflage, not like, you know, it's a grassroots kind of a thing. It's not like a government organization, something that's controlled from above, put it that way. So that's good that you interviewed Susan. So she probably filled you on on the main parts. But just to summarize it, so we, we have taken the battle to Wikipedia, realizing that that one website is phenomenally important to educating the public. So, you know, we can go to our conferences and write books about skepticism and that sort of thing, but it's this is the word preaching to the choir, right? No one goes to conferences unless you're already a skeptic. No one buys the skeptics' books unless you're already a skeptic. But Wikipedia, you Google something and bang, the article on Wikipedia pops up. So this is just regular people looking for information on something. And we realize that since this is, it's tracked as the fourth most trafficked website in the English language, only ahead of it are uh, YouTube, Facebook, and Google. So, you know, those are not the same thing at all. So, you know, for, for information, it's number one in the English-speaking world. So, therefore, it's very important that whatever's on there is correct. Like in this day and age, we have to make sure that anti-vax organizations are called out as that, that they're not scientific and they're wrong, you know, that vaccines are safe, that sort of a thing. So our organization works on all of that. Alternative medicine, we fight the old things like ghost hunting and uh, people who claim that like recce is real or, or those sorts of things. And we put the scientific criticism of those things on the pages. And we also write articles for skeptics and scientific uh, people so that they're well known and they could be found if it's say a journalist decides to you know hey I want to write an article on the scientist I just heard he's in the news uh, what do I know about him and, and they'll, they'll hit the Wikipedia page and so that has to be a really good article with a lot of interesting information so that they'll call that person so we make sure that those pages are as good as they could be that's one thing we do kind of a really awesome way to contribute to the body of knowledge of humanity since that is the way that many people are seeking their 
information and consuming new information, especially at this time when there's a lot of questions about the quality of info that people are getting and whether folks are getting reliable and comprehensive resources to build their own particular knowledge. Absolutely. And as we say, um, you know, any one source isn't necessarily definitive. The good thing about Wikipedia is if it's uh, an article that's about something important, there are a lot of people who put eyes on it and care about it. And it is likely to be reasonably accurate. Some studies have shown Wikipedia to be as reliable as Encyclopedia Britannica or better in some regards. So, yes, but you still, when you read a Wikipedia article, the important thing are the citations that are there and you follow the citations to the original sources to make sure that you know that the article correctly represents what the sources said. Yeah, and I want to give you an idea of how how instrumental this is. So I looked this up once. If you write a book on a science topic, uh, well, we'll just say a nonfiction book, right? The the average author would be lucky to sell three thousand copies of that book in the book's lifetime of printing. So three thousand, right? So okay. People's go really. So, you know, I'm not, I'm not talking about fiction, you know, Harry Potter or whatever, which is going to sell millions, but a science. So to correlate with that, with what we do on Wikipedia, we can write an article on this particular version of something to do with science or whatever, and we'll have tens of thousands of people look at it in a week. Uh, since this team has been working on this, we have um, 71 million page views. Wow. And which we, is, we, yeah, amazing. 360,000 a week. And we should say that uh, just like your work in recovering from religion, your work with uh, Wikipedia is all volunteer as well, correct? That's correct. In fact, almost everyone who works at Wikipedia is a volunteer. Yep, this is just people who care about the truth. And and what we kind of say, a lot of people uh, get into this, and one of the reasons I did, in fact, was because much like the religious issue where you can't really convince your true believer friends that they're wrong, um, you know, you people argue with people on Facebook about all sorts of things, and then you just wind up being blocked or blocking people, and it doesn't do any good. Some people don't want to hear. But this gives you a chance to reach out to people who want the information, who aren't sure, and you could point them in the right direction before they go down a conspiratorial trail or something and start believing, you know, 9-11 was an inside job, or that, you know, the trails behind airplanes are chem- chemicals trying to control the mind. So this, you know, somebody might say, hey, June, did you ever hear chemtrails? And you go, no, let me Google that. And if Wikipedia article is not there on it, she'll just get the people who say chemtrails are, you know, for the government to do mind control. Whereas now, if you get the Wikipedia article that we may have had a hand in, it'll tell you that, no, that's nonsense, and this is how we know that. Amazing. So do you have any particular article that you've contributed to either improving or writing that would stand out as your favorite to sort of the experience of learning and improving the presentation of that knowledge? Hmm. Well, I can. Let's bring it back to the religious topic. So, yeah. So the 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 goal of the gorilla skeptics is generally science versus pseudoscience and medicine versus old medicine. But we do dabble into religious issues. So, we wrote the Wikipedia article for Seth Andrews. I'm sure your listeners know who that is, and and Matt Dillahunty. Um, you know, I had a little hand in that. I wasn't the main writer. So more recent, two prominent yeah. atheist media producers and speakers and authors and activists. Exactly. And also, we wrote the one for Satanic Temple, as well as Lucian Greaves. So, you know, that was kind of important. Um, So, my personal favorite was, I sat down to watch Netflix after I got the call I mentioned from the Hasidic Jewish community. 
Um, growing up in Brooklyn, I knew a little bit about it, but not certainly that much. I didn't have any friends in that community. Uh, clearly, they wouldn't have mingled with me. But this this person got me interested enough to to look online, and I Googled it, and I just happened to find that there was a Wikipedia article for the Netflix miniseries Unorthodox, and. Um, I don't know if you guys have talked about that yet. It's fascinating. We've not, but as someone who, like I said, grew up in uh, yeah. in in the Jewish tradition and have had family members that are part of the Satmar Hasidic community, very, very segregated and uh, clearly not mingling with me, you know, a little rising feminist who almost became a rabbi. <laughs> wow. I would not have been within, within their uh, okay kosher uh, <laughs> mingling. Wow. So, uh, yeah, <laughs> that, that is interesting. So, so I found the Netflix, uh, uh, miniseries had a Wikipedia entry, uh, and it was getting a lot of hits because whenever something is released to Netflix for the first time, you know, Wikipedia article on, and if there is one gets a lot of hits. Uh, but there was also one for the author uh, of, the, of the book that the series is based on Deborah Feldman. And, um, to my surprise, it was awful. Uh, it was just badly constructed. There wasn't, you know, a lot of information on it. So I took that under my wing, and within like a day, I fixed it up to like what we consider great standards for the Grill Skeptics Project. Um, and then I wrote from scratch the article on the book that the series is based on, because that was not on Wikipedia. So that. You know, were, were two of my favorites, and because because people were still googling the miniseries and the articles on Wikipedia are interlinked, I got I got an amazing number of people reading my articles, both on uh, the author Deborah Feldman and the book, which like blew away my records on any of my other articles, just because I happened to hit the timing of that correctly. So there's a little point of pride in being able to contribute to the body of knowledge, but then there's that also I imagine that feeling of just having people being able to expand their knowledge about something that they previously were not super familiar with. And I think that it's really neat. What it speaks to is this interlinking of content creators and media producers and artists and storytellers, right? Because you have Deborah Feldman telling this narrative of herself that then gets adapted into a Netflix film and, and series that then interplays with how people are reading about it. And I Absolutely. Think there's something really magical and, and awesome about Absolutely. expanding knowledge in that way. Um, from my understanding, Deborah Feldman's, what's it called? Her memoir, her narrative about leaving the ultra-Orthodox Jewish community is the seed for the Netflix series, Unorthodox, but Ms. Feldman isn't an atheist necessarily. And it's a way of just like looking at someone's journey. And for someone that may be recovering from religion, it could be a really cool way to provide some parallax and say, hey, just because you leave one sect or leave one thing behind, it doesn't mean you have to leave everything that's important to your identity or to your experience. There's something really um, I would say affirming in that, you know, you and I are atheists. We don't believe that there is evidence of a God and uh, we don't operate our lives in fear of any particular God. But that may not be someone else's story. And I think having exposure to as many stories as possible can 
do nothing but help individuals. Absolutely, absolutely. So one of my other 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 favorite pages, um, I was driving home, I was listening to one of my skeptical podcasts, and I heard this private eye-being uh, interview. Now, so what does that have to do with anything? Well, he specialized in combating psychic fraud. Um, I didn't even know this was a particularly large issue, um, but I was fascinated after I, I heard the interview, and then I went home and I googled him, and wow, there's no Wikipedia page for this guy, and he he was definitely what's called notable for Wikipedia because there were tons of articles, so everything from the New York Times, Washington Post, all across the country, talking about his ten year career. Uh, every time he he had a big court case come up which he helped you know get prosecuted and so i wrote him a wikipedia article and the thing that that is once i became a columnist for skeptical inquirer magazine um i actually got to interview the gentleman and write some articles uh, of my own about him and that led him into the skeptical movement and now he's been speaking at skeptical conferences it's very interesting very interesting indeed. I'm talking with Rob Palmer, the spokesperson for Recovering from Religion, an organization dedicated to providing support and resources for individuals at any point along their path of questioning their faith or leaving religion. On Ask an Atheist with Sam Mulvey, I'm talking with Rob Palmer, spokesperson for Recovering from Religion. Thank you. One of my religious cousins who I was mentioning before who had converted to Pentecostal evangelical Christianity, we're, we're, you know, we're still in moderate contact, and every once in a while she'll ping me with something on Facebook. Uh, so I went to SciCon, the, the, the conference uh, for the magazine I write for. Right. Uh, about science, and, and I, you know, met Richard Dawkins, and I had some selfies with Richard Dawkins, and, and she posted right on my Facebook page, you and your skeptical friends will not be laughing when Jesus' boot is on your neck. Oh, dear. Did you wear boots? Did you respond with, I thought well, he wore sandals? Uh, <laughs> apparently, in the end times, when he comes back again, he's going to be dressed more appropriately for war. Okay, so uh, we should... More like Neo. More like Neo from The Matrix, you know. Gotcha. Uh, Sam yeah. actually just stepped into the studio. Um, he's Hello. probably checking in because he's like, oh, you've been here for an hour or so. So, uh, Sam Mulvey of Ask an Atheist with Sam Mulvey, the non-notable <laughs> Sam Mulvey. <laughs> oh, oh. We, were talking about, we were talking about you, Sam. We were talking about once you get that signed certificate from Jimmy Wales, oh, uh, you, oh, will okay. there, you will thereby become notable. Yeah, I suppose. Uh, hey, my, don't feel bad. My, um, my sort of nickname is the well-known, so by definition you think that would be notable, the well-known skeptic. That's my column name in Skeptical Inquirer, and I'm not notable, so there you go. Oh, yeah. No, I... It, it's... <laughs> I don't know how much Becky told you, but... Uh, yeah, yeah, we talked about it. Yeah. Because um, he works with guerrilla skeptics as well as recovering from religion. Oh, nice. majority of our, of our talk... Yeah, and I also I also write for Skeptical Inquirer. We didn't even talk about that because it wasn't pertinent, but yeah, I do. So I heard you you were in the vein where they went up and then they went down, they went up and they went down for your page. Yeah. Uh, I don't know who decided, but um, uh, somebody decided to make... Jimmy Wells. Jimmy Wells was reading it. And said <laughs> yeah. That well, somebody decided to put us in the... Uh, this happened like three or four times where uh, we'd hit Wikipedia and my dad likes to follow me around and he likes to read Wikipedia. And so he found, found me. He's like, Hey, you're on Wikipedia. And then by the time I would finally go look at it, I'd be gone. And, <laughs> uh, and then there was a conversation in the talk page about how I, I don't need to know about some guy who does a podcast in his attic. 
And I'm like, uh, yeah, yeah. Okay, syndicated talk show host, I guess, doesn't count anymore, but whatever. Uh, it, it's, it, it's, it's hard. So, uh, Susan Garbick, did you meet her? Yeah, I did. Um, yeah, I told her about uh, my favorite Wikipedia story is actually about the Murray Morgan Bridge, which is uh, on it's on 11th Street here in Tacoma. It's downtown. It was under construction for a long time. And the Wikipedia uh, page insisted that it was permanently up. And at, it's, a, it's a lift bridge. It's a lift bridge. As opposed it's to a, a drawbridge. Yeah. yeah, it's a historical bridge. Uh, that they recent that they've been rehabbing over a number of years, and the Wikipedia page insisted that it was in a permanently up condition. And at the time, my office had a great view of the currently down Murray Morgan Bridge, and I tried to edit the article citing the bridge itself as a source, and it got reverted. Uh, <laughs> How did you cite the? I don't understand what that means. Cite the bridge itself. Well, it says where does it come from? Uh, or in the, I just said it, it's, I just deleted the sentence where it says it's permanently up and and wrote in the yeah, sentence, yeah. the bridge is down right now. This is not accurate. And they said no, no, that's a primary source document. We can't cite a primary source. And it's like I have a photo of the bridge. Here is the photo. Uh, oh, it needs dicey. to be published. Uh, I have published a photo. Yeah, and of by the bridge. well, by the time it's like, well, yeah, it needs to be some other source. I'm like, you know what? Okay, be wrong. That's cool. <laughs> uh, it, so was there was there a source that said it was permanently up? The source they cited did not say it was permanently up. Okay, so tell me the name of this bridge again. I'll fix that later. Uh, no, this was years ago. It's, it's fixed like now. Twelve. Uh, yeah, years this, ago. Was, this was a decade ago. <laughs> and at that point, like I was, I was like thinking about doing some work on Wikipedia or something like that. And at that point, I'm like. I don't need this much politics in my life. <laughs> oh. I, I think I'm going to back away here. All right. If I can't say the bridge is up and point to a bridge, I don't know that I have what it takes to be a Wikipedia editor. So, yeah, it's frustrating. <laughs> it's hard, though, because when within the constraints and the rules of Wikipedia, there is the room for inaccuracy to stay as truth. Right. And that's a really frustrating thing. <laughs> I'm not too worried about being on Wikipedia or not at this point. <laughs> I'll be honest with you. Uh, I, not that I ever was. Like, I, um, people were like, you, you know, I know enough about Wikipedia's rules where people would be like, "Hey, you know, we could create an article for you." And I'm like, "That's not really in the spirit of how Wikipedia works." So I'd rather you not. You know, if, if it's going to be created, it's going to be created by somebody who feels like it needs to be documented, not by somebody who's just doing me a solid. If you if you go into Wikipedia in their search bar and you type Wikipedia colon notability, before you hit enter, you'll see like twenty things pop up. Oh yeah. From fields you're in right so it's all different as she was mentioning if you're like in a soccer game i think it's soccer and you like if you're on the roster for one day you're notable right right if you're a, if you're a scientist if you're an academic you need to have won so many prizes and be chair of department and been instrumental in you know in, in the in the in your work how to be instrumental in others work it's like oh my god so, so being an activist, either in the atheist movement or in the skeptical movement, unfortunately falls in that range. It's awful. My it, it really is awful. My concern there is less, like I said, I don't, like, I, I, it's hard to discuss this because everybody, when, when you talk about this, people think, well, you're mad that you're not on Wikipedia. No, I actually literally think it's hilarious. I don't need Wikipedia <laughs> to validate my existence. You took it better than Seth Andrews did when he found out that the window had a paper. <laughs> Yeah, and and but, but what I'm worried about is if Wikipedia is presenting itself to, uh, as a primary source for information as an encyclopedia, these rules are are erasing an entire movement, and that bothers me. 
like I, I appreciate the work that goes into Wikipedia. I understand it's a volunteer. Uh, I understand that that everybody involved is a volunteer, except at the Wikimedia Foundation. But I'm pretty familiar with how these projects go because I'm also, cool. uh, you know, I, I'm in sort of the parallel world of free software. But the fact of the matter is, is that it's a primary source, as in primary as in first, not primary source as an academic primary yep. source of information yep. for a lot of people, which means these editorial rules can have massive social effects as time and Absolutely. you know a lot of these rules are being are, are being defined by people with 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 obvious chips on their shoulders if you read the history um and so a, a lot of what happens is the only thing that's left is the history it's it's sort of a a, a side thing of of again in free software movement where whenever you google a, a weird problem the first page of results is always going to be forum posts of people who know the answer yelling at people who don't know the answer that it's the wrong forum to ask this question in. <laughs> um, it, these are like secondary and tertiary effects of the internet and social interface. It's it's always it, it's just hilarious to me, um, and scary, <laughs> terrifying. I have to laugh because otherwise I'd cry. Uh, this has been a fun conversation. Uh, I don't talk to a lot of people right now, so some other time we will have to talk again. Talk soon. Thanks so much, Rob. It's been a pleasure talking with Rob Palmer, the spokesperson for Recovering from Religion, an organization dedicated to providing support and resources for individuals at any point along their path of questioning their faith or leaving religion. You've been listening to Ask an Atheist with Sam Mulvey. We were very pleased to have spoken with Rob in early October and to have brought renewed awareness to the important resource that Recovering from Religion provides to those in need of kind listening ears and resources and companionship and support for wherever they are in their journey. Now, the crew of Asking Atheist has been staying separate for the most part as the pandemic's dangers continue to be really ever-present right now. Um, in the meantime, though, Sam's main project, which is community radio station KTQALP, has managed to secure a broadcast studio location. It's been very exciting. Um, and Sam has been very hard at work with support from several folks, including some who you might be familiar with. Uh, that includes Josh and Paul and Sharon and I. And uh, Sam's been spending the past few months building out the studio with the goal of being broadcast ready by the first of the year. And it has been challenging. Um really as Sam's vision for it to be a community endeavor uh, has really been hampered by our need to remain vigilant and safe from COVID. So Sam's been largely doing a lot of it solo with occasional help from a few of us who either are part of his household um, or who are able to uh, remain physically distant and masked. Uh, but for those who are interested, Sam is documenting the whole process of building out the community radio station's broadcast studio. He's uh, documenting that on a new YouTube channel. It's called Waveform Orchard. And he's utilizing free and open source software, as Sam is ever want to uh, talk about and utilize. Um, he's using donated furniture and refurbished tech and, well, generally being resourceful and ingenious. Uh, Sam definitely welcomes feedback and interaction for the Waveform Orchard YouTube channel. And you can always email us questions at atheist.radio. You can go to atheist.radio to hear past episodes. Thanks so much to Rob Palmer, who joined us for today's episode. Our music is by Chris Coleman and Phil Whitfield. 
I produced today's episode, but Sam is our executive producer. Check out ktqa.org and Waveform Orchard on YouTube to see what else we've been up to. And have a lovely, safe holiday.